Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Bechtel heads. How's everybody doing? Hi. How's your dystopia? Yeah. Uh, so uh, my, my name is Jamie Loftus. My name's Caitlin Durante. And you, of course, are listening to the Bechtel cast, our weekly feminist podcast, where we use the uh, Bechtel test to analyze movies of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but this week is um is is a weird week, so we just wanted to pop in at the top and uh say hello. Say hello. We hope everyone is safe and healthy and taking precautions and you know it's it's a confusing and scary time and we just we hope you're all doing well. Yeah, hope you're taking care of yourselves um as much as you're able to. We are very lucky to to be all right, and we're also lucky to be able to work from home. We're in mm-hmm. separate places right now, um, but if you're not, you know, we're here for you, and um, you know, take care of yourself. And if you have, uh, you know, resources, please give to your local food bank and just, you know, solidarity. We mm-hmm. need each other, and we love you. And yeah, on that front, I mean. We might be, we're, we're talking about maybe starting like a little Twitter movie club. We'll all watch the same movie at the same time. We'll figure it out. It's on yeah. the table. Everything's on the table. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? Right. <laughs> in, a, in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, you are about to hear an episode that we recorded live in Brooklyn at the Brooklyn Podcast Festival on the movie yes. Black Swan, um, which brings us also to... Our upcoming live shows are, as you might imagine, still in flux. As to be expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. So if, if you ha- if you have tickets to our Austin shows, um, we will keep you posted on the status of those shows. We are going to keep it on the safe side. So we will go by whatever the recommendation is. And uh, Boston shows are canceled and LA shows uh, TBD, kind of the same deal. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Our, our LA show, which is not until mid-May, is hard to say what things will be like by then um so for now it's still on um we will announce if anything changes but um 
We do have a show booked at Dynasty Typewriter in Los Angeles on May 15th. It's my birthday show. So, of course, we are talking about Titanic, which brings me to a little shout out I need to do to a listener, fan of the show, Nicole. She gave me a very large Titanic poster that, that I then bestowed upon to you jamie for a housewarming gift because you just moved we still don't know what to do with it it's so big <laughs> it's so big but it's uh it's I love it. you know it, it's magnificent and just yes. a, an enormous shout out to nicole for that wonderful gift thank you nicole um and i suppose that brings us to um, the episode that you're about to hear. Yes. So this was recorded at the Brooklyn Podcast Festival back in January at the Bell House with guest Hunter Harris. It was a simpler time. It was mm. so much fun. It was a sold out show um, about Black Swan, which is, as you will hear, a dense movie. So we also had a few <laughs> things. Uh, we had so much to say about this movie that it didn't actually all fit into the live show. So you will hear, you know, a uh, dystopian Caitlin and Jamie popping in with some extra stuff we didn't have time for at the live show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with that, enjoy. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Brooklyn. How's it going? You told us it's fine. Um, hi, Jamie. Hi, hi Kayla. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to the Bechtel cast. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, for everyone who isn't physically present in the future, we are at the Bell House. This is for the, the Brooklyn Podcast Festival. Yeah, Yay. yeah. So thank you for coming. Yeah. Um, we're here to talk about the most fucked up movie of all time. I'm so oh. excited. <laughs> I'm so, Kaylin and I, we'll talk about what the podcast is in a second, but Kaylin and I, a while ago, were like, we have to stop talking about fucked up movies at live shows, because yeah. it bums people out. <laughs> but then we're like, mm, what do you think? Uh, Social Network, Black Swan, and, and The Sixth Sense. <laughs> like, so it's fine. It's our dark movie tour. It's fine, yeah. I did a palate cleanser before tonight's show. I should oh, have yes, done this did. after this, but I went to see Paddington Gets in a Jam today. Uh, Caitlin, I, ha- I have a quick question because I know the answer. Were you the only adult without a child <laughs> at the show? Yes, I was. Go off queen. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. I, well, to date, the only Broadway show I've ever seen is SpongeBob the Musical, also alone. Oh. It's a really good musical. Squidward taps with all six tentacles. It's, it's like, how they do that? It's it's wild. Well, um, well but that, here we are. none of that passed the Bechdel test because we talked oh, about Paddington Squidward. and Squidward. You're right. You're right. Allies, but, but doesn't not pass. Feminist icons. Feminist icons. Squidward but. and Paddington. <laughs> I think you'll all agree. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm Jamie. I'm Caitlin. And uh, this is our feminist movie podcast. You know that you've paid money to be here. Um, 
but uh, for, for all you listeners at home, uh, is there anyone here who hasn't heard the Bechtel cast before? Who's been Round dragged here? Round of applause. Here? Oh. Okay. We've okay, got some a lot people. of hostages. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. It just means we have people to convert. Yeah. So for your benefit, this is a uh, feminist movie podcast. We use the Bechdel test, sometimes called the Bechdel-Wallace test, to start discussion. Uh, Caitlin, what is the Bechdel test? Well, Jamie, I'm so glad you asked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a, a media metric created by cartoonist Alison Bechdel, and it requires that two female-identifying characters in a movie have to speak to each other about something other than a man. Can it happen in movies? Usually not. <laughs> It has, but like not overwhelmingly so. Correct. Do yeah. we try it? Uh, yeah, let's try it. You okay. start. Okay. Oh, fuck. I wish I had something. I know. I was like, I can only think about Squidward and Paddington right now. <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, no. You oh, start. Oh, I have. Okay. Hey, Caitlin. Hey, Jamie. Okay. Um, Names. Do you, <laughs> do you identify as, are you more of like a, a white swan or a black swan? Oh, well, isn't that just the human condition, you know? (gasps) I wake up on one way, I go to sleep the other way. Who knows where (laughs) I start and where I end? It all depends on what mommy says. (laughs) It it depends on how mommy treats me that day. Also, we should draw attention to your outfit. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. As I will not shut up about all night, I danced ballet for 15 years, and I've got shit left over, okay? (laughs) So I've been waiting for a Black Swan episode for a long time, because I've got a lot of shit I'm not using, and and I wanted to use again. So for the listeners at home... Oh, I didn't say what I was wearing. uh, Jamie is wearing... (laughs) Is this a a leotard? Is this what you call this? What are you... Don't be worried. It's Yeah, it's a leotard. I don't know. It's a leotard. Oh, can I say something very feminine? Yeah. Okay. I found out two days ago, I, got, I like got my actual bra size measured, mm-hmm. and there's an asterisk here, but I'm a 32C, and I, okay, hold your applause. <laughs> because when I told you two days ago, you got very quiet, as if you did not believe me. And Caitlin doesn't believe true. women. It's canon. I, um, <laughs> I'm canceled. But but you got very quiet. And, but but including the, the the woman who had measured my bra size, she was like, "You're a 32C," and I was like, "How is that possible?" And she was just like, "Well, you have the largest ribbed cage I've ever seen." <laughs> and so that's also factored in. You can have the smallest titties of all time. And be a 32C, we exist. Okay. We, we're out here. Oh, we have someone who just raised their hand. They're like, yeah, yeah. You, all you need is a, a, a ribcage you're not really using. Okay. <laughs> you're like, yeah, I think I was like quiet. And then I was like, what? My, that was my I know. reaction. Well, my, my boyfriend, it stopped passing the Bechdel test. But he, he said later, he said later, he was like, wow, Caitlin really did not believe you. <laughs> Well, okay. it was palpable. In my defense, the room uh, in my in her defense, my titties are very small. I I think we are all we were all led to believe. Oh, just, like, we live in a society, okay? We do live in <laughs> a society. Society leads us to believe that the larger the breast, the larger the cup. Caitlin's and there's a direct correlation. We, Am I this. wrong? Do we, okay. th- we So uh, that's why I was surprised. Okay. <laughs> 
Thank you for that feminist analysis <laughs> of my literal titties that are out right now. Um, but yeah, I'm wearing ballet, my ballet best tonight. Um, because we're talking about Black Swan. We're so excited. Um, it's been a long time request and I am so thrilled. Like we have the best possible person in the entire world to talk about it with us. Yes. Um, so let's bring her out. Let's do it. She is wonderful. She's a staff writer at Vulture. Give it up for Hunter, Hunter Harris. Harris. Oh, 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 there she is. Yes. Hello. Hi. Hi, 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 hi. How are you? Uh, I, I think I drank too much beer in the beer. <laughs> um, never happened in my life. Uh, She's but not no, like I'm the great. other girls. <laughs> <laughs> Caitlin and I, yeah, we brought out a full bottle of, of, of white wine. Um, that feels like a ballet drink. I don't know. I Ballerinas can drink cup. anything. They drink ecstasy <laughs> <laughs> in, in this movie. Yeah. Uh, I'm, yeah, Hunter, we're so excited you're here, particularly for this movie. Um, so let's, uh, let's get into it. What is everyone's experience with Black Swan? What's, what's your experience with it, Hunter? Uh, okay, so... When I was in high school, I was, like, very pretentious, obviously. And <laughs> I remember, like, when I first started, like, reading about movies, like, new movies, I was like, oh, this movie, Black Swan, like, looks legit. Because it, like, had won at Venice or something. And, um, right. And so... <laughs> <laughs> and then I dragged all my friends to see it, and they, like, we all loved it. I, like, on Facebook, when it shows you, like, 10 years ago what your Facebook status was, they were all about Black Swan. Um, <laughs> most of the time, just Black Swan, in all caps, because um, I was a writer. Uh, but, <laughs> but um, so we saw it and, like, loved it and would talk about it every day. And then I remember being in speech and debate, and my teacher, who I guess I won't name, um, was, like, hated it, thought it was so, like weird and bad and and that was we got into like a big fight about it and I think I I mean I I quit speech and debate because I for other reasons but <laughs> that was always in the back of my mind like did not trust this man who did not like Black Swan <laughs> incredible uh, uh Caitlin what's your experience with the movie uh, I saw it in theaters in, in 2010, and um, I had only seen it that one time before rewatching it to prep, because I don't know if you know this about me, but I love a good romp, and this movie is not a romp. <laughs> I thought there was going to be a twist. I'm like, how could you have interpreted this <laughs> as a romp? Um, this movie makes me feel terrible, and I don't like watching movies that make me feel terrible. So I saw it, I walked out of the theater, I was with my best friend, and I was like, fuck that movie, I feel so horrible. And then I was like, I'm never watching this again. But then, then I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's my uh, history. I'm excited to talk about it, but I find this movie um, very challenging. <laughs> wow, brave. I know, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Jamie. I this movie is one of my favorite movies of all time, but I cannot watch it too often because it's like trigger. It like is triggering in every single possible way. Yeah, but a, a movie like after I watch it, I'm like, I remember why mental illness was kind of fun, uh, and like maybe we should revisit it. And then you're like, wait, 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 no, no, no. And then you watch, and then I watch the end. I'm like, oh right, that's why we don't do that. Yeah, anymore. 
but I, I really, I love this movie. This movie came out at like, I was like uh, very into dance growing up and this came out at like the peak of that. I was like, I don't know when in 2010 it came out. So I was like either a senior in high school or I had just entered college and I like saw it with my dance friends and we were all, we all took away the wrong message from it. <laughs> We were like, wow, her pursuit for greatness paid off. <laughs> like, we, were, we were so thrilled about it. Like, I, I love this movie. It makes me, and I think like the more I watch it, the older I get, the more anxious it makes me. Yes. Um, but, but, I, I, but I feel like that's like almost a testament to the movie where there were mental illness symptoms uh, portrayed in this movie that I hadn't even begun to display when I first saw it. <laughs> And then I watch it, you know, six or seven years later. I'm like, oh, the scratching, right. And like, you know, like there's, there's a lot going on in this movie and it weirdly specifically appealed to me at the exact moment it came out. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to defend it too much. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, should we do the recap and go from yeah, there? Yeah, let's recap. Yeah, yeah. So we meet Nina. That's Natalie Portman. Nina Sayers. Yes. She's a very dedicated ballet dancer in New York City. Ever heard of it? Pandering. For, I believe, is it just called the New York City Ballet Company? I think so. The I, it's New York City Ballet, one, yeah. Right? Okay. Or is it real? I think it's, I think it's real. It's real? <laughs> okay, fine. Okay, I'm not a dancer. Okay, <laughs> Okay, fine. I wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> we open on a scary dream she's having, and then strange things start happening to her right away. Like, she sees a woman on the subway who looks exactly like her and is, like, doing the same little hair tuck behind the ear. I like that immediately in this movie, you're like, oh, mirrors, a metaphor. Like, <laughs> oh. And it keeps going. It doesn't stop. It's assuming that you're not getting it the first time. <laughs> Something that I didn't realize until I was on Wikipedia like four hours ago is that she's supposed to be 20 years old in this movie. Oh. Yeah, she's clearly 30. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, we meet Lily. That's Mila Kunis. She is a new dancer to the company. And then we also meet Toma. Um, that's Vincent Castle. Uh, he's like the director of the company. Who is Vincent Castle? Am I supposed to know who he is? And if so, why? He's well, he in was, some stuff. Yeah, he's he like a, a famous French movie star. And he's, okay. he's married to like a beautiful younger woman. That okay. I see oh. So I should, I mean, that's grounds. Yeah. <laughs> that's, fair enough. Okay, fair enough. He announces that they'll open their season with Swan Lake, um, but a more like a gritty version of it this time. <laughs> They're like, it's Chris Nolan. Swan Lake. <laughs> Uh, and he needs a lead who can dance the swan queen, which is means to do both the white swan and the black swan. He basically just like raises his hand. He's like, um, I need the Madonna whore complex represented in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> can anyone? <laughs> so Nina is auditioning, but Lily barges in and throws Nina off so she doesn't get cast in that role. Also because... Toma only sees her as being right for the white swan because she's like very innocent and controlled. And she goes to ask him for the part and then he forces himself on her and kisses her and she bites back. And this convinces him 
that she is dark and edgy enough. Yes. <laughs> Somehow, oh God, it's that like the, he's like, you passed the test. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, he's like, I assaulted you and you assaulted me back. Like you're just like, yeah. Okay, ballet is the most fucked up thing in the entire world. But okay. also in that scene, she's like, her big transformation is that she's just wearing lipstick. Like, <laughs> right. he's like, and he says, oh, you're so dolled up. Right. <laughs> like, the lipstick I sold for my Nota Ryder? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that literally is what it is. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> so she now has been cast as the Swan Queen, and Thomas shows her off at this. Is that a gala? I don't know what a gala is. Um, there's a staircase. There's a staircase. <laughs> it's Everyone's a gala. fancy. And um, this woman, Beth, uh, Winona Ryder's character, mm-hmm. is there, and she used to be the prima ballerina of the company, um, but she's being forced into uh, retirement because she is aging. And right, and and just to be clear, aging in this movie is like ballet aging, and when uh, Winona Ryder was 38 when this movie came out, mm. yeah. she's they're like this old hag. <laughs> And, like, she is, like, she's still got eggs. Like, she's fine. <laughs> you know? I think she says that, too. She's like, no, I still have eggs. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, because they're like, oh, she's hitting menopause. And she's like, I'm actually not. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm in my sexual prime. <laughs> uh, and at the end of this night, Toma has Nina come back to his place. And he is very, he's being very creepy. He's asking about her sexual history. And then he gives her a homework assignment, which is to touch herself. And we're all like, ah. appropriate silence. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Has a male teacher ever given you a creepy homework assignment? Not that creepy, I'm happy to say. Congratulations. <laughs> I had Why? a teacher in high school who was once, it was not like Vincent Ca- Cassell, Castle, whatever, France, I don't know. Um, <laughs> It wasn't like go home and jerk off, but he was like, I had an art teacher. Oh, he told you like to chug. He told me to chug Robitussin. Yeah. (laughs) He was like, do you have cough medicine in your house? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, is it Robitussin? I'm like, "Mm, CVS brand clothes. And he's, (laughs) and he was like, you should drink it. (laughs) Oh my. And then I did. did And I took it. So he says, drink it. And you're like, and I said, walking home, like, yeah, let's, let me go do that. Yeah, because he was 26 and I, and I was <gasps> 15. And so uh-huh. I was like, I better do what he says. And then I went home and I drank the Robitussin and I was like, I feel sick. And then I took a picture on my Sony digital camera. <laughs> and fortunately, that's where the story ends. <laughs> like, but, um, you know. Yikes. I'm sorry that happened. Bear, to you. Well, I'm fine. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Uh, so the following morning, after being given this creepy homework assignment, she follows through and starts masturbating. But, uh-oh, her overbearing mother is in the room. Does everyone remember where they were the first time they saw this scene? It's, like, <laughs> so alarming. Uh, and then other weird stuff keeps happening. Um, there's scratches on her back. There's like some other like body horror stuff happening with her fingernails. I just want to speak about the nails for one moment. <laughs> yes, please. <gasps> because please, the thing that just, you know, really grinds my gears is that in this movie, the mom takes out scissors 
oh, and clips her yes. fingernails and just acts like this is normal. Yeah. <laughs> like, my God. And then later in the movie when she, like the body horror increases and she's like, okay, enough of this nail shit. She takes scissors herself and does it. Like there's nothing else in the home. Who has nail scissors? We all have nail clippers, right? Right. Like, these are like children's scissors. No, they're not. They're like... <laughs> They're like sewing scissors. Like they're, they're really like very sharp. sharp. Yeah. yeah, but they're just like so clearly not meant for human nails. Right. Yeah. I just think that needs to be I'm, discussed. Thank you. <laughs> it, there's no context given for why there are no nail clippers in the house. It, it, it takes place in the present day. They live near a, a Dwayne Reed. Like they, <laughs> they could have them. Right. It wouldn't be hard. Okay, so... <laughs> Does anything else happen? Uh, <laughs> nope, that's the end of the movie. Um, and then we find out that Beth has had a, a horrible accident that leaves her legs badly disfigured. And meanwhile, Nina is practicing and working very hard on the upcoming show. And then Toma is like, you're not fuckable enough when you're dancing... It's, we're like, uh, oh, geez. Um, That's what she says. <laughs> and Lily is showing up more and more, trying to be friends with Nina. Or is she? We don't know. It's almost like there's an unreliable narrator in this movie. <laughs> but they go out for drinks, Lily and Nina. And then Lily gives her, um, is this ecstasy? I don't know how drugs work. Okay. I think when they Caitlin, do ecstasy. When Caitlin and I were talking about this backstage, Caitlin was like, okay, so then she takes an ecstasy. <laughs> <laughs> she oh, takes, no. <laughs> she has one unit of ecstasy. <laughs> she has an ecstasy. Yeah. Based on the yeah, narration, Lily's we like, don't know here, have an ecstasy. Her. And then... That's the line. That's yeah. the line. <laughs> <laughs> and then the night progresses, and then uh, Nina and Lily go home together, they make out, and they have sex. Or do they? <laughs> the queer painting of a generation. <laughs> Someone's cheering. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> um, then the following morning, uh, Nina is like is late getting to rehearsal, and Lily is there dancing in her place. Lily's like, "Yeah, I, I didn't stay over. What are you talking about?" So either she's like gaslighting Nina, or Nina just imagined them having sex. Um, and then she finds out that Lily was made her alternate for the Swan Queen, and she thinks that Lily is trying to steal her role. Mm. And then on the night of the performance, she shows up, but she's like all disoriented. Her mental state, uh, which has been unraveling this whole time, is uh, as an all-time worse. Uh, That's not the name of the band, Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> it's an all-time low. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why I said yes, it like that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's definitely not an expression. Okay. <laughs> but she, So she's like seeing visions of herself on other people's faces mm. during the show. And then between acts... She's growing feathers also. We haven't feathers. brought that up. Her feet yeah. are webbed. Her feet are webbed. Yes. yes. Her, legs her eyes are... Bloodshot. Like, yes. Or are they? <laughs> are we not, I don't know. Canonically oh, and then, and then during the show, she is dropped. 
She's dropped. And that's like, yes. I'm, I just think we need to take a moment for that. Yeah. Because that's like a big A moment of deal. silence for her. She's dropped and like starts freaking out. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, okay, fuck this. Right. Puts on the black swan makeup. And she's like, let's get it popping. Right. <laughs> but I think before that, she gets in a fight with Lily uh, in her dressing or room. Is, or does she? Or does she? And stabs her with a piece of broken mirror. Or does she? Or does she? And then Nina like drags her body into the bathroom and then goes out as the black swan and like does she, she does. does great yeah. as the black swan. Everyone loves or it. Or she does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then there's another act break and Nina comes down to her dressing room, but Lily's body is not there and it never was, or was it? <laughs> okay, so oh, who did she know. stab? She she has stabbed herself, is what happened. Can I, okay, I've, as someone who's never stabbed themselves, it seems like a pretty little stab. <laughs> Maybe she punctures an organ or something. I don't know. But that, she that pulls like, out, she's like, it, it's deep, but it's little. No, that shard yeah. of glass was like an inch wide. I don't, but also I, there's so it, much. Someone was like, and it, like, I'm like, I feel like you could, people get stabbed a lot of times and they're okay. Mm. Um, <laughs> according I don't mean to challenge, but I'm like, I don't think. Okay. But I think you're assuming that she's like a reliable narrator in this moment. True. I don't think we know necessarily how much, because she breaks so much glass and it's like gone the next time she comes back. And So I don't think we know exactly how deep the injury is. And, it just, then, and also the costume itself is so lush and there's so much tool, mm-hmm. T-U-L-L-E, that <laughs> just in case you thought it was the other kind of tool. It um, also looks like gauze. Like, yeah, good thing yeah. her costume is made of gauze. <laughs> Like to absorb all the blood. (laughs) Is this common? And also, we see in the previous scene that she goes to see Beth in the hospital, and Beth stabs herself. But it's kind of clear that that isn't actually what happens, or is it? But like, (laughs) it's maybe it's like there's a million. She it's she looks at Beth stabbing herself, and then she turns back, and it's like suddenly her face stabbing her. Nina's face stabbing Nina. So she could have been stabbing herself for several hours before <laughs> this happens. And it's like, no one caught this? Even at, even at the end, when Vincent Castle Cassell is mm-hmm. looking over and is like, you were so great. And then everyone's like, oh. And there she's covered in blood. Right. How does no one notice for like <laughs> two minutes? I get why the audience doesn't notice because she's really far away. But everyone's congratulating her for like 45 seconds before <laughs> they're like, oh, she's dead. <laughs> She can't hear us. Right, which is how the movie ends. So Lily, or so, sorry, uh, Nina has apparently stabbed herself and then she dies at the end of the performance and and that's the end of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. 
She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, let's talk about it. Oh boy. There's so much there's a, there's a lot to talk about with this movie. I I'm going to cut this movie a lot of slack for a movie that we have to say right at the top, it was um, directed by Darren Aronofsky, as most people know. It was written by three men who aren't Darren Aronofsky, <laughs> um, which is somehow miraculous that they <laughs> managed to... Is he um, here? Is he... Darren? Darren! <laughs> I did invite him. Mm. Darren? <laughs> I just tweeted, Darren Aronofsky, please come. <laughs> I do hope you're wearing Does a Does he scarf. live in New York? Do you know about the scarf thing? Yeah, he lives in New York. Do you know about the huh? scarf thing? Wait, no. Wait, no. Okay. Let me get no, into yeah, it. No, yeah, unpack that. My favorite thing about Darren Aronofsky is that he loves wearing scarves. Oh, yeah. And yeah, he's, yeah. like, rarely spotted without a scarf. Mm-hmm. And they're always, like, just so ostentatiously large. Um, and I think it was at Huffington Post, um, a reporter asked him, like, why do you always wear scarves? And he was like, the weakness of my body is my throat. Which, <laughs> you know? Huh? What, what a way to say a thing is all I'm going to say about that. That's also, like, a, something anyone could say, but he says as if it's specific to him. <laughs> like, wait, is he saying I he's, love like... It. I love it. Great. You know how someone's, like, oh, I don't like my, you know, arms. Like, is he insecure about it? Or is he saying, like, someone might slash my throat and I have to cover it up? <laughs> you know, what if that's it? What if he's, like, the knives are out. I have to, like, I have to keep her buttoned up. 
My favorite Aronofsky fact is that Jennifer Lawrence broke up with him because he wouldn't shut up about mother's reviews. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's just a fragile person. Um, don't you mean mother, mother exclamation point. Lowercase, all mother too. Yeah. That's important. Um, wow, mother, what a moment. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, so where we should we there. where should we start? Uh, there's a lot of ways we can start. I mean, I think that um, one of the big things for us to talk about is I, I I feel like something where this movie really is like cool and succeeds is in kind of encompassing a lot of different ways where it seems like Nina's downfall and like some of the specifics of this kind of miss, but Nina's downfall seems to be this big pile up of expectations of women where she's trying to be everything at once and there's no way anyone can be everything at once and when she tries to be the second she succeeds she dies mm -hmm. so I mean like there's so much being asked of her and I feel like him choosing ballet is like very deliberate in doing so because it's so over the top of those expectations where her body has to be a very particular way and we see you know, she has an eating disorder and she has to, like, suffer to look a certain way. Mm -hmm. And um, her director is demanding the Madonna whore complex from her mm -hmm. where, like, you have to be a virgin, but you also have to be a slut. And, like, <laughs> and if she isn't both at once, he's mad at her and he retaliates against her. And, like, she's, she's trying to be all these things at once while also being told by everyone around her, like, if she has a thought or, like, any sort of like problem or mental illness of her own, there's no time for it and she can't deal with it. And it just like every single thing piles up on her to the point where her like what happens to her makes sense mm -hmm. for her. That's how I, I'm just, I'm just like, you know, justice for Nina. But she was perfect. Right. So, <laughs> was it worth it? No, okay. <laughs> she was really good. <laughs> So for me, okay, Darren Aronofsky, he loves an allegory. We've all seen Mother. No, uh, we haven't. <laughs> it's Have the most popular Mother? movie. No. Um, <laughs> and I think he handles, like, metaphor better in Black Swan. But I feel like, right, this, the narrative is sort of like an allegory or metaphor for, you know, a, a, a woman's role in society and uh, the expectation to be a certain way and to be perfect and to be striving for that perfection and uh, also coming up against different things like sexual predators and mm -hmm. just this sort of different relationship dynamics that are in some ways like women competing against each other. And or like the idea of aging in the, general. The, right. It's huge here. Yeah. Yes. So all these different things that the movie handles well. Watch your words. <laughs> Be very careful. My, okay, my whole thing is that I, I think one of the reasons this is so challenging for me, this movie, to, to talk about, like, Yes, it addresses a lot of things, and you could argue that, like, the ballet company is sort of like a microcosm of the patriarchy and all this stuff like that. But, the mo again, the movie makes me feel horrible. So <laughs> while it's, like, yes, addressing things, and it's like, here's how society be, uh, I there's just, I don't know. It just, like, there's so few... Like I don't feel empowered by this movie, and I that's not the that's intention. What it's there for, yeah, it's not the intention. But I'm just like, where are all the movies that like I can feel empowered by? There's others. Where are, where are the others. romps? 
<laughs> I know. So like, I'm coming at it with like this bias of like, it makes me feel bad and I don't like it. But there's value to it, and I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna check my feelings. Anyway, okay, let's move okay. on. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know, is, Hunter. Is there any like any particular like theme this movie addresses that like stands out to you especially? Yeah, the thing that I always come back to is like this idea of Nina being like a child. She lives mm. with her mother on mm. the Upper West Side, which is you know whatever. But um, <laughs> but even I feel like it's kind of like one of the bigger reveals in the movie is when she's masturbating and then you, it like pans out and you see like how pink her bedroom is. It's like oh, she yeah. sleeps with stuffed animals. Mm -hmm. She, everything, like she has like a music box that her like mom tucks her in at night and all of this stuff that it's like a woman has raised her to be sort of infantile in a way to be like molded by men. But at the same time, the men in her life, the man in her life is like, that's not what I want you to be. He's like asking her to present differently, to be more salacious and sexy and sexual and it's funny because a lot of like I was reading about this today that Natalie Portman like Darren Aronofsky was like trying to figure out who could be the Lily character who could look enough like Natalie Portman for it to be like a convincing double but it's not just her playing this other part and it's like some of the some of the ways the camera shoots Mila Kunis and Natalie Portman is like identical and you get the sense that like these are sort of like, one can't exist without the other. Harry Potter. Um, wow. So sorry. Wow. Um, no, keep going. But Look at her go. I, <laughs> that's, like, the second Harry Potter reference I've made today. Like, I'm done. Um, cut the cameras. Deadass. <laughs> sorry. Uh, but I think, like, that sort of duality is really interesting. And I think the way that visually they sort of exploit their likeness is really cool. Mm -hmm. um, and also just that, like, even... There's something about Natalie's performance in this movie, although I do think she should have won her Oscar for Jackie, but um, thank you. Controversial. Wow. That's allyship right there. My mom feels the same way. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> no, I mean that in a, in a good way. <laughs> um, <laughs> the way that, like, Natalie Portman changes her voice throughout the movie, I think, is really, like... Cool. And the scenes with her mom, she's like, I just want to dance. And then, sorry about that. And then, <laughs> and then later she's like, I'm the swan queen. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay. <laughs> okay, raise your voice. Um, <laughs> that stuff I think is really cool. Like how she is playing with just like femininity and like womanhood in terms of aging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I like one of the things that I like didn't, I definitely didn't catch on the first view because in the first view, I'm like, this is good mental health and how I should act. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, media is complicated, but. Um, you were like, what a romp. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Can't wait to go to ballet rehearsal tomorrow. <laughs> like, uh, but like the, the idea of um, Mila, like Lily's character is the only person in the entire movie who ever calls out Tomas's behavior for what it is, which is like creepy, manipulative, predatory. She's the only person that ever explicitly says like what he's doing is wrong and it's very obvious that it's wrong. And, and, and the fact that that is kind of twisted and then we see like his character, you know, like uh, Lily warns her and there's a lot of warnings for Nina that kind of goes unheeded in this movie, but like Lily warns her, oh, he called Winona Ryder Little Princess. He'll be calling you Little Princess any day now. And Natalie Portman is like, no, I'm not like the other girls. I'm different. 
And Mila Kunis is like, mm, okay. She's like, <laughs> she's like we'll here, see. have an ecstasy. And, and then, then, right. <laughs> and then, like, 24 seconds before Natalie Portman dies, he calls her little princess. And yeah. so you see that the only, like, male relationship that Nina ever has in this entire movie is not about her at all. Like, it's just about his perception of what a woman and, like, what the woman he needs to do this job should be and not who the person actually is because he just conflates Winona Ryder with Natalie Portman. And when Winona Ryder turns 38, he's like, okay, you have to walk in front of a car now. I need a quote-unquote 20-year-old. You know, like, the, yeah. it, it, it's, it's very clear where he's coming from. And, and so, I don't know. Yeah, I just, I think this movie is well done. <laughs> but with that, I think something that, there's, like, a hint in the movie that Lily is sleeping with Toma. There's right. one part where he's, where she's like, oh, I ran into him this morning. And it's like, it's 6 o'clock. What time was this morning? Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and then also Nina has, like, a hallucination where Toman, she's like walking in on them having sex, but then he turns into like the Rothbart. Thank you. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it, <laughs> it's almost like that. I mean, the thing I don't like about this movie is that it's such a like strict binary, like Nina, goddess, Lily, whore. But I think in a, in a different way, it's like Lily doesn't believe the things Tomas says about any of them. She, she understands inherently that like she's succeeding for reasons that don't have anything to do with her because like he finds her sufficiently fuckable. And right. that's something that like Nina never understands. She believes everything that everyone tells her and tries to meet every standard of perfection. And that is why she dies, but also why she was a great ballerina. <sighs> so, you <laughs> it's know, hard. what do you do? Yeah, like in terms of survival, this movie comes down firmly like, you gotta be whore to live. <laughs> like, but it like pretty much only like only exactly when a man wants to have sex with you, and then like the rest of the time, it's like. Well, I mean, it's just like Lily is the only one who sees through his act and is able to like thrive above it because she sees it for what it is. She kind of, I guess, meets him on his terms when she feels like she needs to, and then when she doesn't, she's like, "Yeah, he's a fucking like idiot. Like I, I'm gonna do an ecstasy. <laughs> I don't." I don't care where, where like, you know, like Nina's character is the, like the virginal, you know, she still lives with her mom and that's a whole other discussion. And, and so this is like her first male relationship. And so she's entering it from this kind of like Disney princess, like, oh, this is, he cares about me. He must, that this is everything that I've been taught that this will be. And that like sort of leads to her downfall is her thinking that he would genuinely care about her. What I like is that at the end, she hears that he really never cared about her the whole time when he calls her Little Princess. Mm -hmm. But by that point, she doesn't care because she has succeeded in the way that she wanted to succeed, partially for her. And then when you see her make like eye contact with Barbara Hershey, I'm like, and I guess for her weird mom. (laughs) Uh, And so it is like, as devastating as it is that she dies at the end, you know that at least she is succeeded on her own terms and the only way that she could succeed on her own terms by this movie's logic is to collapse under all the pressure she's been under the whole time yeah (sighs) bummer (laughs) bummer (laughs) happy pride from tomboy x celebrating pride and the queer community all year 
Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand-new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can we talk about her and her mom a little bit? Yeah. Because I think that that is, like, a really interesting dynamic. I mean, you don't get to see a ton of, like, in-depth mother-daughter relationships on screen really at all. And so, you know, when you get one, you're like, I hope it's really fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it's unhealthy and I can't learn anything from it. Um, That said, (laughs) first of all, the real star of the mother-daughter dynamic in this movie, I feel, is that cake (laughs) that she gets. (laughs) Okay, I... I, I disagree, but I like that. Oh, I, I like that cake. That's when Barbara Hershey gets um, the two of them a sheet cake. <laughs> when, uh, so Nina's mom gets Nina and her, the only people who live in that house, a gigantic, like, star market sheet cake. When Nina, okay, regional reference wrong. Um, but 
they get her a huge sheet cake when she gets the part of a swan queen. And then Nina's like, as we know, everyone in this household is anorexic. And Nina's mom says, well, fine, I'll throw it away. And like dramatically is about to whisk this $14 cake into the trash. <laughs> and like that's the first gaslight we see of this relationship. Right. But, I mean, I think that, like, it, it would be kind of an easy read of this relationship because it's later revealed that Nina's mom was also invested in being a ballerina but had to drop out of being involved in ballet when she got pregnant with Nina. Therefore, some very specific inherited trauma of, I can't be ballerina, so you am ballerina. Yeah. Um, and we don't deal with mental illness. We don't talk about it. Um, yeah, her, her solution is stay in your room until you feel better. And then she's like, right. let me cut your nails, too. And yeah. With scissors, again. <laughs> with whatever's around. <laughs> um, and I thought, I, and it's like, I, I feel like, it, like I originally, when I was re-watching this, I'm like, oh, I hope she's just not reduced to I am like a jealous stage mom. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the movie does do a little more than that, where it is clear that she resents her daughter for taking, quote-unquote, and this is, like, another commentary, I feel like, on the way the movie deals with aging and how women are treated in this specific world. But when you're a woman who's pregnant, you're not useful to ballet, and so you're taken out, and she resents her daughter instead of the system that creates that narrative. Right. And then from there, what I like is... You like it would be easy to be like, why is Nina still there? You know, she's making her own living. She's a ballerina. Like, why wouldn't she stay? But we learned because of Nina's past mental health problems, which is like alluded to through the scratching and, and all these other indicators, mm-hmm. that on top of being stage mom and resentful, she's also trying to be a good mom by knowing that her daughter has had these mental health breaks before and feeling like someone needs to keep an eye on her. And so I I, I was worried on the rewatch that there would be no grounded reason for Nina to stay and no grounded reason for the mom to want to keep her there. But I feel like that is kind of provided of... She she wants to protect her daughter, but the way she protects her makes it more likely for her to have a mental health break again, which, Mm -hmm. I don't know, someone should call my mom about that. (laughs) We don't know. I love how much you're interrogating that that specific choice because I was like, oh, it's New York. Like, I bet it's too expensive for her to live anywhere else. <laughs> um, but no, all of that is absolutely true too. What I so your favorite set piece between them was the cake. My favorite is I love the cake when Nina walks in. It's like sort of an open like living area where Nina practices ballet, and then her mom has just like all of these portraits that she's painted of Nina. They're all. So ugly. Oh man. And, and all in different styles too. Yes. You're like, did she take a class? And like, what all, did she do? <laughs> and at one point the mom, she like walks in on her mom just like sobbing and like painting a photo of her. And it's like, what? Okay. Um, and then later, whenever she's like having another hallucination, she sees all like these images of herself like done in post, like sobbing too, and like screaming at her, and it's like, what? Oh if if my mom painted anything, I'd be like, stop. Just, <laughs> I don't know who it's of, no more. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that that's like one of the most interesting like frictions in the movies between Nina and her mom. Because mm-hmm. later she says, to, when, whenever her mom brings up like, oh, I could have been a ballerina as like, as, I could have been good, as good as you are, but I got pregnant. And then under her breath, Nina's like, okay, but you never made it out of the core. And 
She's like, and you were 28 because yeah. 28 is so old. Uh, <laughs> 20 year old movie. Nina is like, oh my God. Right. <laughs> and we're like, okay, Natalie Portman, sure. Um, uh. I don't know. I feel like, and maybe this is just me, but I, I felt like the, the mother character was characterized as being like pretty cartoony, like, like mm. overbearing mom. I know. I know. She is, <laughs> but there also you have the reason like you have the reasons and you also have the unreliable like I guess like one of the things with this movie is you can justify almost anything that happens in the movie of like well, Nina's an unreliable narrator, so it makes sense. Right. Uh, like you don't like the way she's seeing every character is a little bit heightened. I guess you're supposed to assume to what is actually happening. True. And that's the case, yeah, I mean, right, that's the case for all of her, all of the female relationships in this movie, because on one hand, it might just be that Lily is trying to reach out and be like, hey, I want to be your friend, you seem cool, Uh, let's hang out. But through Nina's kind of unraveling lens, she thinks that Lily's trying to steal her part and replace her and... All this stuff. And so it's still never quite clear to me what is true there and what isn't. It's not clear, <sighs> right? And what then, does everyone think? Okay, <laughs> I, Hunter, I what do you like think Lily's trying to do? What's her goal? On rewatch, I feel like she was just like being nice okay. that she didn't have any other friends because okay. she was also so cool with like the girls in the core that were like in the very first scene, like mean to Nina, and Nina was like. Mm. She was oh, just yeah. like so Veronica or whatever. Her yeah, name yeah, is. you're yeah. a bitch, yeah. and you're like, why oh, is she always staring at test? me? Yeah, I mean, there's so many, there's so many scenes. Even at the that gala, like Nina's in the bathroom, Lily comes in and she like slips off her underpants. Why does she do that? Because she's about to fuck that guy. Oh, Caitlin. <laughs> oh, okay. Wait, what guy? <laughs> I missed this. Oh one. wait, oh wait. Sebastian Stan is in this movie, oh, yeah. but that was not Sebastian Stan yeah, in that scene. scene. That was a different. That was I a different know, sexual but partner. But anyone could be Sebastian Stan, really. Like, <laughs> I every time Sebastian stands on screen, I'm like, is that who that is? Like, I've never fully identified who that is. Wait, did you did you watch every, Gossip Girl? Did you watch Gossip Girl when you were younger? I did. Yeah, I did watch Gossip Girl, and I still don't know who he is. Like, I. Carter I've Mason. seen Sebastian Stan in probably the v- majority of his projects, and every time he shows up, I'm like, who? Like, <laughs> that's, his name is what? Like, and Caitlin texted me today, like, oh, wow, did you spot Sebastian Stan? Because I, is my favorite movie. And I was like, I have no fucking clue who that man is. <laughs> there, Sebastian Stan could be in the audience right now, and I could... <laughs> Sebastian? Push him on my way to the bathroom. Darren I have no and idea Sebastian who he is. are here. They're in the back. They're I've, friends. They're somewhere. <laughs> who is Sebastian Stan? I'm sorry. <laughs> but then, okay, so we've got that. We have uh, the, the mother-daughter relationship. We have uh, Nina and Lily. And then we have, like, the Nina and Beth relationship. And all of yeah. these relationships are poised as being antagonistic. But like you said, can we write that off as just being, as Nina being an unreliable narrator or is this movie written by men? Or can I don't okay. know. Yeah. I do think Beth is pissed. Like, come on. Yeah. Also, I like this sort of meta idea that if this movie were made like 20 years earlier, Winona Ryder would be like in the Nina role, right? That's like such a Natalie sure. Portman thing. Um, but I love that like, what is what does she say whenever they're at the gala, like, everyone says gone, Beth is like, he always said you were so frigid. Yeah. And Nina's right. like, 
what? He didn't say that about me. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> but then, okay, so in that, okay, uh, this relationship, sorry, let me find this in my copious notes yeah. here. I, well, Beth is, I feel like Beth, Beth and Nina's mom are used as the, like, they're both used in a way to comment on how age is perceived in the ballet world. And then this movie, the ballet world is supposed to be the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So in like Nina's mom's case, like she became pregnant and that's what halted her career. And then in Winona Ryder's case, she became 35 and that's what halted her career. Mm -hmm. And so they're both kind of being used to comment on the same issue in a different way. Way. And I think also because Beth doesn't have a family or doesn't have kids and she's like still sort of sleeping with Toma, it's like, well, there's literally nothing for you to do. Like there's, we can't even like keep you around. We have to literally create the circumstance for you to like be pushed out. Yeah. That was like the one, I think, relationship in the movie with Nina, like with Nina that I didn't get everything out of that I kind of wanted to. That was the one relationship that I left being like, I feel like Beth was a little under, like. Underserved. Right. Yeah. Because like kind of the beat-by-beat situation with her story is that before we even see her on screen, there are various characters being like, oh, she's going through menopause, and yeah, my grandma's a good dancer, too. Like, they're talking shit on her for her, like, for her aging, and Nina defends her. 38, yeah. And then we see her trashing her dressing room, presumably right after she's been told that, like, she has to retire. And then we see her drunk at the gala, and she calls Nina a whore, and she's like, you sucked his dick or whatever. Right. And, and Nina's like, not all of us have to, implying that Beth did have to, so she had been defending her, and now she's like, well, you're the whore. Right, and, then, and that's like the kind of, like I felt like the way that Beth acted in that scene, that was like one of the moments where I'm like, Beth, more than anyone in this entire gala, uh, <gasps> like... <laughs> Beth, more than anyone here, knows what Tomas's game is. So why would she be victimizing a young woman when she knows who the person doing it is? Right. Like that was the that was like one of the writing moments where I was a little bit confused. She's like, mad what? at Nina for replacing her, quote unquote, when right. she should be mad at Tomas. And she's been there long enough that I feel like she would know who to be mad at. So that I mean, was sure, like, but yeah. she's not a perfect person. Like No, and she's drunk. Right. <laughs> but there's also another key moment that is after Beth trashes her room, Nina goes in and starts like picking at her things. Like she takes her lipstick and like her nail file mm-hmm. and um, her earrings or were those her earrings? Yeah, her earrings. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I think that is like it adds another layer of complexity that sort of Nina's trying on this persona. I think sort of subconsciously she wants to be or at least have Beth's status but doesn't understand how to use it or what it means Mm -hmm. and that's why she's like well not all of us have to and Beth's like bitch yes you do (laughs) um and I I like that it's just another example of Nina like having no clue what she's actually doing or how to meet the expectations of like a man that is awful and that's like kind of ultimately what the Beth character is is like narratively she's supposed to be like a warning to Nina of like if you're not careful and if you don't treat yourself specifically and not the craft you're in carefully, you will end up like this. If you trust Tomas, this is where you'll end up. And she kind of ignores that and blames Beth versus this, like the system that made Beth the way she was. And then Nina, you know, dies 10 years earlier than Beth does. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think Nina is a snob, though, because yeah. of how she was raised by her mom. Like, she's been raised to look down upon ballerinas like Beth, who are getting older, but who also didn't exist purely on talent, the way that she thinks that she has. Mm-hmm. Which we don't know if she... I mean, it's like, it's... It's confusing. <laughs> um, there, there's a quick... So one of the, I think, the big things to talk about here that I just want to get out while we have time is the mental health themes going on here um, because there's a lot going on and and I was trying to do some research into like how was it received at the time versus now and it's kind of all over the place. So my view of this movie's treatment of mental health has changed as well, mm-hmm. but... Um, at the time and sort of into the current day, that being now. What? Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Please explain. I'm sorry. I have to pee. Um, <laughs> the, it's kind of all over the place. And it, and it seems like that is kind of intentionally done. So the symptoms that we see Nina display are never explicitly named as any specific mental health issue, mm-hmm. which I usually feel is a good thing. Because when you see a movie say, this is bipolar disorder, this is schizophrenia, like this is whatever, generally what they're portraying is not 100% accurate. Right. And then like creates a stigma against that condition that isn't even based in fact. And usually like conflates it like with violent behavior or does something. Right. to demonize it. So that is one thing that this movie conflates mental illness a, in a general sense with violence mm-hmm. where like when Nina, it, like the more Nina descends into mental illness, the more violent we see her become towards other people and or herself or does it? Like we don't know. <laughs> violence towards something. It's like mental illness and violence are treated kind of as one in the same as it gets worse. Yeah. But it's not treated as one thing, which is which is positive. So I was looking up um, how have mental health organizations treated this movie, and I found a couple things. Um, the first being from the Psychological Care and Healing Center, and they said, uh, quote, while the movie does an excellent job of portraying the terror related to psychosis, there is a large amount of artistic license taken by the movie. There are simply too many psychological issues going on with Nina. She shows elements of an anxiety disorder with obsessive compulsive behaviors. She also manifests self-injurious behavior and some sides of an eating disorder. She dabbles with substance abuse. She has psychotic breaks, if not outright psychosis. A case could also be made for a personality disorder. It is highly unlikely that all of these elements could coexist in one person, especially someone performing as a ballerina at such a high level. So basically all of that to say, like, the writers and directors of this movie are taking kind of, like, a general sampler platter Mm -hmm. of mental illness and taking appetizers as needed to serve the narrative. Right. Which I, like, which, I mean, it's complicated, but as long as they don't name, as long as they're not demonizing a specific mental illness, I am more able to, like understand why they're doing it and there's also been there were also like in 2010 some people like why don't we see nina getting help i'm like but that's a different movie that's just who's gonna get nina help in this movie right her support veronica (laughs) no right everyone around her again with the whole unreliable narrator thing it's either people who are gaslighting her or not 
or like because I mean with Lily is she is she emotionally manipulating her or is she just trying to be a friend and we don't know because I'm with Hunter there I think she's trying to be a friend I, th- I, I think, think she's so. trying to be a friend but I think she's also like you know has her own set of issues sure and is like not really able but at the same time this all I think the fact that this is so specifically limited to the ballet world and like we don't really get a chance to see Nina outside of this context so it's like these are her coworkers. they don't really know what goes on with her outside of rehearsal. And I think that sort of has an effect too, that this girl is like trying to be, this girl meaning Lily is like trying to be her friend, like friendly, but like not a close friend to like yeah. really engage. Right. That she adds does a level. slip an ecstasy into her drink. Or, or does, does she? Well, <laughs> I was going to say, she's like, kiss Sebastian know. Stan. He's she, or does she? Or who could Sebastian who, Stan okay. be? <laughs> We don't know. It's all very unclear what goes on with Nina and Lily. And that leads all the way up to the queer baiting of a generation. Yeah. <laughs> Which I was very baited by. I was like, I was, the worm was there. I was like, how? Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> the bait was there. I took the bait. Whoop. I was like, yes, this is the best thing that's ever happened. I like remember like I that scene, you know, I feel like for every generation there's a scene that you're like, ooh, like for a couple of years before us, mine was uh Mulholland Drive. Anyone? Ooh. Some murmuring there, in the crowd. There the for like when Mila Kunis looks up from eating out Natalie Portman, we're like, oh, like it's just like <laughs> it's very like and it still works for me to this day. <laughs> I'm like, I know we're not supposed to do this, but like, wow, it's very exciting. Um, what were we saying about queer baiting? Queer baiting. Um, it doesn't, okay. No, this is what we were saying. Okay. Uh, the issue with, with this scene is that we see it and we're like, wow, wow, wow. My, I, I, you know, this is, I need to call my boyfriend and tell him something that's going on with me. Um... But but the, the issue is that this scene canonically does not happen that we know of. <laughs> but like we're led to believe, I want to believe it happens. But like it doesn't like a, it. It seems like it doesn't happen, and that's where the baiting. If, comes if we're in. to believe Mila Kunis's character, it does not happen. Right. Right. And Even she's the more reliable of the two characters. Or is she? <gasps> <gasps> You're right, they know. fucked. I'm be- I feel better. <laughs> I was going to say, I think the movie itself, whenever Nina goes back to the apartment, we only see her talking to her mom, and her mom does not even acknowledge that there's someone else there. That's true. And it's like the, the Lily sense. character like, like walks in and then hides, like goes into Nina's room. You know, I think that's just like further evidence that Lily is right. Yeah. I, I kind of feel, yeah, like they kind of do a little uh, it's M. Night it's Shyamalan tricky. on yeah. you. They're like, oh, Bruce Willis never does talk directly to anybody, does he? <laughs> like, yeah, like Lily never directly speaks to, I mean, I guess we don't know why Nina's mom went to the door. Maybe it was like a postmate. <laughs> no, she's like, where have you been? You have a thing tomorrow. Oh, oh I think okay. that sees, that, that moment she, Lily does show up. Yes, but when when she comes in, but when she comes in, when Nina comes home, she does not like she's not actually her there. mom's this like is a okay. figment of imagination. where were you? And she's yeah. like, Tom she's and not Jerry. like who's this other lady? She doesn't right. say that because Lily, because I guess, is not, not there. there. The okay. cavity is not there. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, don't apologize. <laughs> I just 
I like that scene very clearly is Beatty and not Canon, but I want it to be Canon so hard. <laughs> there, it's I hit my tooth on the mic. I, um, yeah. So, so that like that whole scene is is very kind of bizarre in the way that I feel like it's just one of those moments of like Aronofsky is trying to have it always mm-hmm. of like he wants to have the trailer moment of Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis are kissing you're gonna want to see this movie it's gonna make a lot of money you know and like don't think too hard about the themes like give me $11 like and in that way I think it succeeded because that's what got me there mm-hmm. and uh, but but I mean those sort of baiting scenes are are rooted in in history of scenes that depict queerness, but then are later majorly backpedaled on of like well that didn't actually happen or like some other way of negating the actual scene that was heavily marketed as a big part mm-hmm. of the movie. Right. So that's a bummer. There's also that quick moment where Lily, when they're at the club with Sebastian Stan and some other guy, uh, she's like, hey, these guys are gay lovers. And they're like, what? And and they kind of breeze past it. So at least you don't have like these straight guys being like, oh, we're not gay. But that's just... But that's just because we're led to believe that <laughs> Natalie Portman is screaming in this bar, like, right. to everybody. Just and then, like, hi, kiss me, kiss me, you're gay, <laughs> kiss me. Like, like, she's just, like, all over. I don't know what's supposed to be happening. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, can we talk about... I love that scene. <laughs> oh, and then uh, the other, like, then what happens is um, Sebastian Stan says, oh, I've never been to the ballet. And then Lily goes, well, then you're definitely not gay. And it's like... Why is this scene in the movie? Um, can we talk about the like the predatory relationship between uh, Thomas and Nina? Yeah, because this is another part of the movie that I really struggle with. Because okay. on one hand, it's depicting a predatory situation where you know he has the power; he's make he's calling the shots. He is who determines who gets certain roles. And she is kind of like powerless to, she has to kind of succumb to his authority and power. And he manipulates her based on this power dynamic uh, or this power imbalance. But what, what I don't like to see necessarily, even though it might be realistic, is that she is punished at the end and he is not. She is punished because she is dead and he... That is canon. Thrives. She is dead. And that, again, <laughs> m- might be a realistic depiction of how these predatory relationships often go, but it's just another reason this movie really bums me out. But I think, With- it's, I think that, like, misogyny is a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> go on. Men abusing power is for sure a bummer. <laughs> but... It happens. That's why we're sitting here. You know, like, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I feel I agree with you, and I, like, I don't think that there's really an empowering message to take away from this movie, but I also don't think that that's what it's 
trying to do. I feel like it's more trying to demonstrate if you fold to every pressure being forced on you by whatever system you're existing in, it will crush you. And and so then you have to leave the theater being like, well, what are my other options? Mm-hmm. You know, like I just I, I felt like and the, and and some of the criticism I was reading that was like kind of when it was coming out ten years ago was that it was weirdly revolutionary in 2010 to see a man that you knew abusing you that was like in your workplace mm-hmm. where so often and I feel like um, something that came out around the same time was like Girl with a Dragon Tattoo I think came out a, a year later where you see a very clear sexual predator who's a total stranger and I feel like that is mostly the way that predators are portrayed in fiction is like a sexual predator is someone you don't know. A sexual predator is someone who sneaks up on you mm-hmm. and like you you won't there's no way to prepare for it. There's no way to recognize it in the world that you live in and Black Swan very clearly places it like this is a person she knows. This is a person who has a clear motive for like weaponizing his power against her mm-hmm. and it's not comfortable to see but it is realistic. Like and it, and I feel like you know you see it dealt with by a number of different women. You see that Nina is not fully prepared on how to deal with it because he is the patriarch in this situation and she, as far as we know, doesn't have any other relationships to compare it with. Mm -hmm. We see that uh, Lily sees it and has seen it before and is like, this is bullshit. I'm not going to deal with this beyond what I have to. And... I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's an uncomfortable portrayal, but it feels like realistic, if a little melodramatic at moments, to like things that exist. And I appreciate it on that level. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, as much as it's like demonstrating like the societal pressures that are happening here with, like, with misogyny, I think it's also Nina has been raised in this culture that makes her want to please him and want to bend herself and fit to to fit his idea that oh the black swan needs to be like like black and white swan need to be one person it's like no they don't though like this is just what he has decided and so she is like working her very hardest to meet that you know made up expectation mm-hmm. um and also something that i was reading just today was that at the time it came out Vincent Cassell was asked, like, do you think that he's like trying to get laid? And even though that we're talking, the way that we're talking about this character now, the way it has evolved in the 10 years since the movie came out is so like astonishing. Like we are able to think about, okay, well, he is obviously in power. She lives in like this kind of culture. Like we live in a society, but she lives in the core. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> But he was asked, like, oh, do you think that, like, he's, like, trying to get laid or what do you think it is? And he's like, no, I think it's, like, more of, like, an artistic calculus on his part. He doesn't really care about her. He just, like, wants this to happen. Right, but I think it is, like, such a warped idea of art and artists and also power that Mm -hmm. we can see much more clearly now than obviously when this movie came out. That's something that I came up against also in the way that Aronofsky was giving interviews around this time, too, of it seems like, at least at this time, and we don't know how he feels in the age of mother! Like, we don't know <laughs> how he how he's evolved, how his scarves, the colors have maybe changed, we don't know. Um, you know, Jennifer Lawrence married a man named Cook Maroney. You know, anything could happen in this world. A lot of Cook Maroney heads, fine. Um... <laughs> But he's at the show. Cook he's, is here. Did we invite Cook Maroney <laughs> to the show? Um, 
but no, the way that um, Aronofsky talked about it at the time was very much like it, it almost felt like his thesis in some way, it was criticisms of thing we've, things we've been talking about, but it was also that by his vision that you couldn't have art without some sort of mental, you know, like something happening. Like, like a mental compromise? With, yeah, exactly. Like you can't have great art without a mental compromise. And that was sort of the way he was giving interviews at this time. And something like there there were uh there's a really good um essay that came out about this from uh lessons of, from the screenplay that I really love and have been it came out a couple of years ago but that kind of compares the black swan narrative directly against whiplash which came out yeah which came out uh, a couple of years uh, after I think that compares on a gender basis like both of these movies are about a quest by a protagonist for artistic greatness. And in both of these movies, there is a male mentor who is torturing the protagonist to become great. And the way it plays out in both movies, for better or worse, is very different. And I feel like the, the thing that Black Swan succeeds in is portraying this male mentor as like a bad and toxic influence of like, he is torturing them, he's abusing them, it's very clear what he's doing, and it you know, results in great art, but like great personal sacrifice, where in Whiplash, if you've seen it, which is like, meh, well, I mean, whatever, uh, <laughs> do you, I don't care about Miles Teller, oh, um, you know, he bothers me <laughs> to look at, <laughs> I don't like looking at Miles Teller. Uh, he, and then if you read an interview, you're like, I'm justified. Uh, <laughs> he's an annoying person. But, the, but in Whiplash, he plays a jazz drummer. He's trying to become great. Um, and I was going to say J.J. Abrams, but I mean the other guy. Uh, uh, oh, no, what's his name? Oh, my God. J.K. Simmons. Yes, J.K. Simmons. Yeah. J.J. Abrams, Abrams like, like you said. Oh, I, don't, I won't be able to come up with it. J.K. Simmons is screaming at him the whole movie, but the climaxes of the movies are very different, where uh, Natalie Portman's character achieves greatness and dies because the you know because of all the expectations that are very gendered being placed upon her and then in the other case um you end up uh, kind of receiving the JK Simmons character as well yeah he threw shit at this person he was violently abusive towards this person but it resulted in this great performance and he lived so uh they're probably friends today and so the man gets to live, but also has the legacy of this toxic influence, whereas the woman realizes what the toxic influence was, but she dies. And so there, there's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I like Black Swan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, another part of it, and I think this just has to do with like the very complicated nature of being the victim of a predator, which is you, like you see that scene. So she gets assaulted many times in this movie by him. Yeah. There's the one scene in particular where he's like, "You're no one wants to fuck you. Let me teach you how to seduce. And then he, there's this really uncomfortable moment where, you know, he's forcing himself on her. He's groping her. She d is not really resisting. And it, and it probably is because she's really confused and, and uncomfortable and she doesn't know how to respond. And... Uh, and he's the only person who has the power over what her dream is. Right. Yeah. And then the aftermath of that is that 
and this is a little unclear, but it, the narrative frames it as though she she likes him because she's defending him in front of Lily because she's like, oh, you're hot for teacher. And she's like, you don't know him. And again, that's just maybe part of the complicated nature of that you know dynamic. But I can't help but think of mother. <laughs> Where in that movie, which we covered it, go back and listen to the episode if you want. But um, there's a, a moment in that movie where uh, it starts out a sexual assault and then becomes a consensual sex scene. And I can't help but to wonder if, because they're both Aronofsky movies, if he thinks that might be how sex goes sometimes. I I mean, what I can say for sure with Aronofsky is that he thinks a scarf keeps his head on his body. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I can say for 100%. Uh It's like that, what was that scary story to tell in the dark story? That if he took his scarf off, his head would fall off. Um, he for sure 100% believes that. We have no reason to believe he doesn't believe that. There's been no canonical reason to believe that. He doesn't think that. Um, so I don't, it's, it's, in, a, it's a very complicated, I, and I think that because this movie is directed by a man who doesn't necessarily have the best track record for certain things and then written by several men. I don't know. I just, I, I, I can't disag- trust. Uh, I, I just, I, I disagree on the grounds that we know that this is Nina's first experience with a romantic relationship at all. And just based on, I mean, on my first romantic experience and, and possibly other people's, I don't know, but like, the first time you, you know, like, assume the best of someone, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And Nina is doing this at a much later age, 20, mm-hmm. um, than, than a, a lot of other people do. But I, I feel like I, I thought that her willingness to forgive him was both a reflection of, like, he is the gatekeeper to my dreams, but also that the fact that she's been so protected and she's been so naive and she doesn't have compare like anything to compare it to. Mm-hmm. Then Her mom tucks her into bed at night. Like, right. she has no understanding of how a human, like, how a real adult relationship of any kind, romantic, like, relationship that's romantic or platonic should or would look. He's like I think, a prince to her. Yeah, like, and she, yeah. I think that that's, like, the swan like metaphor becomes like more meta to the story is that she really does cast herself as like in like such a didactic way and that is ultimately like, what is her undoing hmm. went, oh <laughs> i love it i love it the point is this movie is great <laughs> <laughs> um we, we're running out of time uh do we have a single moment for audience feedback? Yeah, a little tiny bit. Let's say two. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah, we've got a mic. If Wait, you have yes. a question or comment, um, please make it oh as quick gosh. as possible. Yes, please. We only have time for like... Oh, here comes someone. Oh, no, no, no. Come on up, come on up. She's here. Hello. What, what's your name? Hello. Yes. Hi, I'm Kristen. Kristen, hi. Kristen. Hi. hi. Um, First off, I just wanted to say that Alfred Molina would have made a much better Toma. Yes, Am I, right? I agree. Yes. Thank We'd you. be like, that's why she likes him. Right. And I just wanted to comment real quick to go back to um, Nina's voice real quick um, for a little context corner. Um, oh, sure. I, just, I read somewhere that apparently um, Natalie Portman, when she was starting out or um, was getting um, 
you know, like acting lessons and stuff, she had been told that her voice sounded like too girlish or babyish, and she had to kind of do vocal exercises to make it sound more like adult and more woman-like. But apparently okay. for this film, she was told to kind of like throw that at the door. And then you like, it's very funny the way you hear her read certain lines, like if that other girl had barged in, or just like little like line reads like that, that just show like, is not the way a grown-ass woman like <laughs> speaks to her mother or like talks about other women, you know, supposedly. But I just wanted to mention that real quick. It's a very nice, subtle thing that she does with her performance, just to sound like this is a little girl, or like you know, this is like not a normal woman. So I just wanted to mention that. And just yeah, that, thank there you. are definitely like certain acting choices and certain like wardrobe choices that help, you know enhance the theme of the movie. And, and Natalie won for her best uh, her best actress Oscar for yeah. this. She was great. Definitely. Yeah. I yeah, also read agree. according to Wikipedia, both Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis had to work out 5 hours a day in preparation for this role. And they both, both lost, lost a ton of weight. A ton of weight. Yeah. Scary. Let's not talk about it for a minute. Um, right. But thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Thanks. Hi. Hello. What's your um, name? My name's Sam. Hi. Hi. Um, Long-time listener, uh, first-time caller. So, <laughs> um, my uh, my question to you is like, does it pass like the reverse Bechdel test? Which I don't think it does at all. Because no, I mean, I there's think like the, barely any guy. There's like three. The, guys I mean, it's a very female-driven story yeah. with only one main male character. The rest are yeah. pretty ancillary. But it definitely passes the Bechdel test. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we it haven't does. gotten there yet. But yeah, it passes yeah. between several different combinations of characters. But yeah, I don't think it... Uh, men don't speak to each other in this movie? I don't think. So that's, that's a win. That's text. That's feminist text. Movies, like, I don't think... I can't think of any movie that does do that. You know? Right. We've encountered a few, but they are, they are so rare. So very yeah. rare. Too rare, some would say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the things that they're mostly talking about are uh, female ambition, their relationships with each other, like their relationship to reality, a genderless concept. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of things that women are talking about. In the, in ballet, also, uh, A cake? A cake. It's a cake. I'll throw it away <laughs> if you don't want it. I right? I love that scene I so much. I think and Alfred Molina like, should have been the cake. I love it. With his octo hands coming out? Alfred Molina should have been the cake. <laughs> great. Thank you That's so much. That's a great point. Thank you so much, Sam. Yes. Hi. Hi. Uh, my name is Petra, huge fan of the pod. Hi. Um, so I kind of wanted to stir the pot a little bit between Jamie and Caitlin oh. and... Um, <laughs> Um, bring it back to the conversation about the sexual predatory behavior that was going on in the movie. Um, so I watched this last night, and just thinking about it in the context of the Harvey Weinstein trials, I kind of was able to see this, this dynamic between Nina and Tomah. And it seemed like Darren Aronofsky was trying to have her flip the situation on its head and like kind of trying to take control of it. Um, and I was just kind of wondering what you guys thought and the way that you know those predatory relationships are seen in, in modern day? I think that, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I can't wait to argue about it. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that, like, there there is a lot, I mean, it maybe doesn't go as far as it should in 2010, maybe, but, I, I like, in reading the 
backlog of criticism about this. There were a lot of people who compared the Tomas character to a Roman Polanski type character of like, here is a man who creates great art, depending on how you film art. Uh, but like, here's a man who creates well-regarded art, who in the creation of this art, women are brutalized and punished. Right, and many considered uh, Aronofsky at the time to be making some sort of comment on this, of like asking that question, like, is this art that this abusive man creates worth the consequence? And then clearly, no, of course. I mean, we know that. Right? Did us? No. Did seriously a man just say no? I. There. Okay. 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 But like, we get it. We know. Uh, we've been here for four years. Um, <laughs> Thank you, though. Thank you for telling us no. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. My rhetorical question was answered by a man as usual. I, I can't fucking believe this. Um, I, yeah, so... I'm sorry, I'm just, like, bringing my blood pressure down. Caitlin took my wine bottle away. Um, all that to say, I, 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 yeah, like, there, that conversation is... Right up, like it, I feel like it asks the audience that question and then gets us it very involved with the consequence of his great art that, you know, kills its main character, who's a character we love and very much are on the side of. So, I don't know. I think for, for especially given the fact that it was 10 years ago when no one was talking about this really at all, it's doing a lot more than was asked of your average movie at that time. So I'll give him that. And I don't want to argue, so <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I win. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. What's your oh. name? Oh, okay. my name's Aisha. Hi. Hi, Aisha. Hello. Okay, I'm just going to preface by saying that I am 20. <gasps> Brave. Actually, so 20. much life ahead of you. Thanks. <laughs> and I do not look anything like Natalie Portman. But then again, she is a ballerina living in the Upper West Side, and I'm wearing the glasses of a 70-year-old librarian. <laughs> and I live in Newark, so there's a bit of a difference there. Oh, and I wanted to make a comment about how people like Aronofsky, especially like people... I have a whole thing about auteurs. We're not going to get into it. Yes. But... You hear a lot that art is suffering, mm. and to make good art, you have to suffer. That's what Mother is about. Right. <laughs> and so Natalie Portman, she cannot be successful, she cannot be exceptional without suffering mm -hmm. and being at odds with every woman in her surrounding because bitches be fighting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and until she writes horror across a mirror. And then once she does that, like once she's just like a little bit like exceptional and she's a little bit above everyone else, she dies. Mm. She dies. And I find that super offensive and super annoying. It's like, great, she like twirls around for like two seconds and then she's dead? What the <laughs> heck? But yeah, that's my comment. I mean, we make art and we're thriving. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. But then it's like if you take that, if you take the scarf off our boss, his head falls off. So I guess <laughs> kind of complicated. But that is, that is a really good point of just like 
yeah, like the, the the world of this story doesn't afford her, you know, the ability to live. Well, that's, I mean, like, there's so many movies I mean, I about like how being a woman is horror and scary. Do I you mean, disagree? But like, <laughs> I mean, I, yes, but that's why, and I I do see the value in this movie, but I just I I do wish there were more empowering stories that were uh, just more about like you know women. Thelma and Louise, they drive off a cliff at the end because there's no Yeah, other. they die in a different they way. All, every, women so are always think about dying. That. At the end, I mean, <sighs> speaking of Roman Plansky, fucking Rosemary's baby, like, she, like, she has to have a devil baby. Like, <laughs> women are always being punished and again, like, that's part of reality, but we're also we're fucking strong and we can rise up and not die! <laughs> so, that was my retort to the earlier <laughs> argument. <laughs> I there's movies where that, I just I like yeah whatever. I don't know. I the more I think about it, the more I think that Nina her idea of perfection is like a masculine idea of perfection. It's Tomas's idea, and so yeah. at the end when she's like, "I did it, I was perfect," she's meeting his standard of perfection, not necessarily her own. Right, and that's why she dies. Hunter sure. Harris. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Uh, we do. We're we're getting. We've been getting the light for ten minutes. Oh shit. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry. We will we will talk to you after. We just have to really quickly uh, rate this movie on our nipple scale. It passes the Bechdel test. Spoiler alert. Obviously. Yeah. Um, but let's uh, rate it on our nipple scale. A uh, scale of one to five nipples based on the uh, the movie's treatment of women. Two to five. Um, what do you uh, give it? I don't want to go first. I'm scared. Why? No, you go first. I haven't thought oh about god. it. Oh my god. I don't have. I, mm, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna say okay. So I'm gonna say. Uh, I'm gonna say three and a half, um, and someone went ooh. Uh, I'm gonna say three and a half. I think that this is a very brutal depiction of womanhood, but it's a depiction of womanhood that I, at the time and unfortunately still, pretty closely connect to. And I know that it is not, I mean, you remove it because of the fact that it offers no real victory. Like Hunter was just saying, it's about a woman's pursuit of a male's idea of female perfection. But I think that it's not an unrelatable narrative, even if it's like heightened to an 11. Um, and there are the, the drawbacks that we have discussed. But I think it's like a very upsetting, frustrating look at you know, it, it, a woman who has never been asked to do anything but try to meet a male ideal and how that has brutally punished her and caused her own downfall and total neglect of herself. And it's not fun to watch, but I do think that it is, like, an important thing to examine and look at. So I'm going to give it three and a half nipples, giving all three and a half to Alfred Molina, who had nothing to do with it. <laughs> Can I give nipples, too? Yes, of course. Yes, okay, yes. I'm going to say everything that you said, but I'm going to give it an extra half nipple, so four nipples. Ooh, I love it. For the Clint Menzel Tchaikovsky score, which is... Yes. Yes. That earns another half nipple for me. That's it. all. Um, I'll give it a three. Oh, someone validated me. <laughs> Should I go lower? Ooh. Stop it! <laughs> Stop it! Caitlin never makes up her actual mind in the live shows. Only at the live shows. I am very confident in the studio. I kind of want to give it a two and a half, honestly. Go ahead. Go ahead. I have no attachment to this movie whatsoever. So I have been examining it through just like 
my lens of 2020. And I, while it is a female-driven story, it's just there's so much focus on antagonistic relationships between women and a predatory situation that I don't think is necessarily handled that responsibly and some other stuff. Uh, but I do also see the value in it. You know, there's everything that you said, but minus a nipple. Um, so, and I'll give um, my nipples to Paddington, get some a jam. <laughs> Uh, All right. So uh, we got to wrap up. Yeah, we've got to get out of here. Thank you so much, Hunter Harris. Uh, where can we find you online? Where can we find your work? Uh, I'm uh, Hunter. I just forgot my fucking name. Um, I'm Hunter Y. Harris on Twitter. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Thank you to the Bell House. Thank, Thank you to the so Brooklyn much. Podcast Festival. Thank you to all of you. Thank you. And that was our live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Uh, we Before we, we go into all our normal plugs, we actually have a few things that we didn't have time for in the show. They were literally kicking us out of the venue. Fair. The show was long. <laughs> Um, so there, but there are a few more things to, to talk about with this movie. So, uh, really quickly, um, one thing that I thought was interesting, like an interesting discussion that you don't really see brought up in film discussions very much is, uh, the role of the dancer in a dance movie like this, because Natalie Portman, you know, obviously, or maybe not obviously didn't do all the ballet dancing in this movie. She Mm -hmm. did a lot. It wasn't that she, I mean, she trained, she like did her due diligence, but, uh, she had a dance double named Sarah Lane, who was a soloist at the American ballet theater. One of the biggest, most fanciest ones of them all who, who did kind of the heavy lifting, but there was a little controversy around that because she wasn't really credited accordingly for the amount of work mm-hmm. that she did. Right. She also said that um, most of Natalie's dancing on screen is actually her with Natalie Portman's face like digitally grafted onto hers. Which is another thing that happens in, in one of my favorite movies, my fa- actual favorite movie, I, Tonya. Oh, right. Yes. I was just mm-hmm. thinking about that. Um, And then the production team of Black Swan responded to this by saying that the footage that was used in the final cut of the movie was mostly Natalie dancing and that Sarah Lane was only used in a few wide shots. Sarah Lane disagrees. She says that, you know, the production team told her to keep quiet in an effort to make it seem like Natalie Portman had done more dancing than she actually did. So, you know, I... It's worth it was just worth mentioning that, you know, a a woman who put in a lot of, you know, hard work into this film was kind of silenced. And I mean, it's super frustrating and kind of like typical too that Mm -hmm. something like this would happen of like you almost get the feeling that this is like an effort to be like, oh, well, if we credit this dancer the way that we're supposed to like we lose a little bullet point on like Natalie Portman's Oscar submission or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's a little frustrating on the Natalie Portman side too, of someone who generally tends to be on the right side of things being at least complicit in, uh, in a situation like this. So mm-hmm. for the record, we're team Sarah Lane. And also mm-hmm. you can kind of clearly see that it's not like they're kind of deep faking it a little bit like a social network Winklevoss style. So like also (laughs) don't underestimate your viewers. We also see it. 
Right. Um, so there's, I mean, but, but there's, uh, that's not the only controversy attributed to this production. Nope. The next one is, so the film Perfect Blue, which is an anime film directed by Satoshi Khan. Yes. Many people have noticed similarities between that film and Black Swan. Yeah. Um, so from my understanding, Darren Aronofsky purchased the American film rights to Perfect Blue so that he could use the bathtub scene from Perfect Blue in another of his films, Requiem for a Dream. Yes. And if you see yes. that side-by-side -side comparison, you will see that those two scenes are virtually identical. So yeah. now people speculate that because he owns the American rights to Perfect Blue, that Aronofsky might have borrowed some stuff from it for Black Swan. Well, so the frustrating thing there, I mean, it's like the connections between Aronofsky and the movie are so, so well documented that he doesn't have a leg to stand on really it's not I mean there is sometimes overlap in ideas but this is like he literally purchased the film rights there's no question <laughs> that this is what it is but I found um a, an interview that um Satoshi Khan's producer Masao Maruyama did with Dazed a couple of years ago in in 2017 that mm -hmm. just further confirms this where um he says that Aronofsky and Khan actually had met up they had discussed this it seemed like they were both very enthusiastic about Aronofsky possibly just adapting the anime to the screen mm -hmm. and the the quote is uh, quote I met with Aronofsky alongside Khan, said Maruyama. It wouldn't have been a problem with an adaptation. We thought that a director of that status could have adapted the film and done it in his own way, and that would have been fine. But I think that Aronofsky's Black Swan, including the similarities it has to Perfect Blue, is a very interesting film. So diplomatic mm -hmm. answer from that camp. Right. <laughs> um, very classy. But it's like, yeah, he, he totally ripped it, which is so, you know... For a, you know, white male known for being arrogant auteur uh, stealing from a famous cult anime film director, that is an exceptionally bad look. Right. We saw the same thing with uh, The Lion King and um, mm -hmm. Kimba the White Lion, right? Yeah. Yeah. So... It's just like American productions totally erasing um, the fact that they're stealing from Japanese creators. And I went and watched perfect blue did you like it just to check it out i did like it and believe it or not there are quite a few similarities <laughs> uh, in terms of so the story is that um, a young pop star decides to make a bit of a career shift and turns to dramatic acting instead so she okay. leaves this pop group that she's in to become an actor but she because she kind of has to start over. Uh, she's not landing the type of roles that she really wants. And also while this is happening, um, there seems to be a man who is stalking her and sort of infiltrating her, her life and then like posting about it online. Which is so like wildly ahead of its time considering this movie came out in 1997. You're I just know. like, what did Khan know that we didn't know? Right. But the so the real similarities lie in just this sort of overall idea that it's about a woman whose grasp on reality becomes more and more warped because like as this woman is being stalked, she keeps seeing this image of her likeness. She thinks mm -hmm. there's another woman out there who is either trying to be her or is out to get her. Um, her mental state really starts to unravel 
There's a more specific example in that there's a moment on the subway train where the main character, whose name is Mima, uh, not unlike Nina from Black Swan, Mm -hmm. um, Mima sees an image of someone who looks exactly like her, like in the reflection in a subway car. And that exact thing happens in Black Swan. Well, I'll be goddamned. I'll be goddamned. Yeah. Uh, so, so I mean, it it seems like a pretty cut and dry thing. And it, if anything, it made me want to watch that movie. So I'm glad you got to see it. And now, mm-hmm. I mean, now that we're in the quar, might might as well gotta Maybe gotta find got something to do. But time, I'm, I was about to. Caitlin, did you ever play Club Penguin? No, what's that? You should Google Club Penguin. I, I'm not going to get more specific. <laughs> I feel like we might we might thrive on Club Penguin. Okay. Anyways, right. <laughs> um, you had one more fun piece of... Ju- I mean, this is just juicy. This mm. uh, Okay, so hit it. So, I read that while this movie was being filmed, Darren Aronofsky tried to pit Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis against each other, mm-hmm. I guess, to just, like, try to heighten the tension between the characters in the film. And he would do this by sending them text messages that complimented the other actor's performance to make them jealous of each other. So he would be like, hey, Mila, didn't Natalie do such a good job on set today? Which is so, like, transparent, too. It's like, if you're going to try to, like, emotionally manipulate someone, like, make an effort, dude. Like, (laughs) right? weak, weak, weak. Well, here's the best part, is that it did not work. And it had quite the opposite effect of what Aronofsky wanted because Natalie and Mila were already good friends. So whenever Aronofsky texted one with compliments about the other, they would just respond and say, yes, I agree. My friend Natalie Portman is doing a great job. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> like, Oh, brother. I just, yeah, I... That makes me so happy because it's like Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis seem to, I mean, based on what I know, seem to be lovely people. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm glad that they just were like all for like, and also that Darren Aronofsky's assumption is that women don't want to support each other just like plays into so many tropes that is like, hey, maybe not assuming this would make you a better writer. Um, <laughs> right. Unfortunately, I still love this movie so much forever and ever and ever. Amen. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, so that that was our that was our um, exclusive quarantine bonus content um, <laughs> that we wanted to, everyone to know, and that's the episode, right? Yes, that's it. Great. So thanks for listening. Thanks to everyone who came to the live show. Thanks to our guest Hunter Harris. Um, she is incredible. Thank you to the Brooklyn Podcast Festival for having us, mm-hmm. as well as the Bell House for hosting. Yes, thanks to, again, thanks to everyone who came out, who bought merch, um, who just supports us in any way. And um, you can also support us by, you know, following us on social media, mm-hmm. um, going to our Patreon, aka Matreon, and subscribing for $5 a month. We're going to be, yeah, trying to do more like community stuff on there. But also, if you can't afford it right now, we totally understand. Like, it's it's a time. It's a time. It's a time. Yes. Yes, indeed. But if you can't afford it, it's a great way to pass some time. And, yes, um, very true. And, you know, listen to those bonus episodes. Uh, so, I mean, and when we got time to burn, we're going to start making some wild picks. Right now, it's Share March. 
Um, <laughs> but we have we have we have some stuff in the mix. But oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you can keep in touch with us there. And um, in the meantime, take care of yourselves. We hope that uh, the podcast is is a good distraction from um, from all the other stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And we're here for you. We love you. Yes, we love you. Take care. Be safe. Bye. Bye. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X visit tomboyx.com. Hey girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher back with another season of the global number one podcast, the girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.